1: Welcome back. As we head into hour three, we get to do so with the great Brandon Weikert, our first interview together for the new year, 2024, from the broadcast studios at 960 Patriot, brought to you by the veteran Midas Gold Group, your trusted source for precious metals. Brandon is, among other things... The author of Winning Space, How America Remains a Superpower, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, and Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. You can follow him on Twix, Twitter X, at WeTheBrandon. Happy New Year, Brandon.
2: Happy New Year. And I don't know if I had told your audience, but officially in December, we signed the contract, Roger Kimball and I, and I am developing for release right before the election in November. Uh, a book about the truth of the Ukraine war called A Disaster of Our Own Making. Oh,
1: wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, yeah. Brandon. Uh, that probably plays okay. into a lot of what I want to talk to you about today, but is the Excellent. thesis, yeah, is the thesis our own making, meaning um, that the disaster preceded the invasion by Putin?
2: Yes, and then it was exacerbated by the response to the invasion. Uh huh. Um, but basically, the, the, All the research I've done, and it pains me to say this, but all the research that I've done indicates that NATO expansion was probably 70 to 80 percent of the reason why we are in the position that we are now in uh, and why the Ukrainians are being made to pay uh, with their blood uh, for really what was um, uh, a policy that was unnecessary when it was going on. It was um, decadent for us to try to push that, um, because the Russians, unfortunately, had not been defeated in a conventional sense. They simply were defeated ideologically and politically at the end of the Cold War. Um, and so we basically spent the next 30 years humiliating them, as the Western uh, nations had done to Germany after World War I, and we know what happened because of that. Um, something similar now, unfortunately, is playing out here with U.S. and Russia.
1: Well, let me ask you about that on NATO expansion, um, Brandon, if I might, because uh, if if indeed a lot of these countries that joined NATO um, had worries or concerns about being invaded or, yeah, being incurred from Russia or from a, a, you know, from Vladimir Putin or any of his successors, none of them, it seems to me, had made any offensive um uh, 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 offensive moves towards Russia. Why is it why is that the cause of Russia's aggression into well, Ukraine? it
2: was the yeah, it was the fact that so initially, and this is I talk about this in the book, initially um people like Yeltsin and uh Putin initially were actually not having a problem with NATO expansion. It wasn't until both of those leaders at deeper points in their presidencies started to realize that the Russians were not going to be included in that security arrangement, that they started to believe that NATO expansion was not just this harmless, natural kind of progression of post-Cold War politics, but that it was quickly becoming an alliance that was anti-Russian, um, and we you know we could talk about how that, that wasn't the case, and, and NATO certainly argues that that's not what they were after. But the point is, the people sitting in the Kremlin, Gorbachev and then Yeltsin, who was very pro-American, and then Vladimir Putin, all three of those men, very different men, um, they all three ultimately concluded that NATO was not expanding because of bureaucratic inertia, that it was expanding because... The goal of the West was to basically decimate Russia when it was already on its knees, and that could just be Russian paranoia. But I think it's important for U.S. statesmen and women to be able to understand what the other side is thinking, sure. um, and you know to be able to see that NATO expansion was not necessary for a new and lasting security in Europe. In fact. It actually – NATO expansion has basically destabilized Europe to the point that now we're having to shift resources away from countering China uh, and dealing with Iran in the Middle East to now having to basically blow through our limited arsenal uh, for Ukraine, who apparently, no matter what, is still losing the war to Russia, which is a huge problem for us
1: well when russia goes into crimea which would have been what 2014 something like yep. that um at that point it's uh, you straighten me out here or just maybe give us a lesson here at that point if russia's going into into crimea what would have been, and that's 2014. What would have been the us belly for that? Because there was no real NATO expansion for I don't know at least ten years, unless you care about Albania.
2: Well, the problem with that was uh, going back to 2004, uh, the Orange Revolution, in which a Russian-friendly candidate won the election, and then the people in Kiev uh, protested it uh, and attempted to basically undo the results of that election. That election, by the way, was very corrupt. Both the Western side and the Russian side's intelligence was very much interfering with the natural processes there. But from 2004 to 2014, Vladimir Putin became convinced that the NATO alliance was trying to install a pro-NATO element in power in Kyiv, not only to ensure that Ukraine ultimately became both part of the EU and NATO, but more importantly, in the year 2010, the uh, lease for the Russian naval base at Sevastopol in the Crimean Peninsula, which is their primary base for their Black Sea fleet, Sevastopol is one of only, I think, four Russian warm-water ports uh, basically, the, the Putin was convinced the Americans were trying to, uh, change the politics in Kyiv in order to deny him the lease renewal, uh, and thereby pushing, uh, the Black Sea fleet out of Ukraine and in back into Russia, basically depriving Russia of access to the Black Sea and the Mediterranean beyond, which would have been a strategic nightmare for the Russians. Um, and so that's why Putin ultimately invaded Crimea was because he believed that the West was trying again after Euromaidan protests in 2014 that put a pro-Western regime in charge in, in Kiev. His fear was that um, basically the, um, the Americans were trying to push... Uh, the, the 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 Russians out of the Black Sea port of Sevastopol.
1: Okay, all right. Um, do, do we take any um, message from the winds of these invasions? Um, because you know there are there are there are two definitive American presidencies that we can point to in 2014 with Crimea. <coughs> excuse me, and again, of course, <coughs> with uh, Ukraine in uh, 2021. And, you know, there was no invasion between 2014 and 2021, and there was no real invasion uh, between 2000 and 2008.
2: Well, the the first point, I'd, I'd like to start with the second thing, okay. uh, would be the reason that we didn't have any kind of issue of an invasion from 2017 to 2021 was because we had a president, Donald Trump, who was effectively supporting Ukrainian independence without courting a greater war uh, with the Russian Federation. And so that, that coupled with the fact that in uh, Moscow, despite what the American media was saying in Moscow – uh, they were very much afraid of Trump because he was considered to be unpredictable right he wasn't you know somebody that they were very familiar with in terms of his politics and his style of leadership, whereas Hillary Clinton and jeb Bush they knew very well, and they knew the people that they those two people would bring with them to the White House with Donald Trump. It was a whole new can of worms, and so Putin was trying to give a wide berth to Trump at the same time, unlike Obama, who never once fulfilled the orders for. Uh, lethal aid to be given to Ukraine after the 2014 uh, Russian invasion of Crimea, Trump actually fulfilled and expanded the orders for uh, javelin missiles and actual offensive equipment that was eventually used. And so my point here is not to say that um, the Russians were justified. My point is to say that all of this could have been avoided in the 90s had the H.W. Bush, Bill Clinton... George W. Bush presidencies not just become mindlessly committed to expanding NATO at the expense of relations with Russia. And then you can couple that with Obama's failure in 2014 to actually stop the Russian invasion, which he would have been justified in doing. uh, That only propounded the issue. Um, And somehow Trump was able to avoid a catastrophe, of course, that Biden Wondered right into almost immediately yep.
1: upon being elected no i good 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 work brandon thank you for i'm looking forward to this uh let me take a quick commercial break let's switch over a little bit to the middle east too uh when we come sure. right back brandon weikert is my guest he and i'll be right back welcome back to the seth leapson show brought to you live from the patrick broadcast studio brought to you by the veteran owned midas gold group your trusted trusted source for precious metals Your trusted source for everything bright and smart is Brandon Weikert. He is the author of several books, most recently The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy, and Biohacked, China's Race to Control Life. We were just getting a little bit of a preview of his new and upcoming book, which we will see, I think you said, before the election, yeah? This year?
2: Right before the election, Wonderful.
1: It's interesting
2: how publishers can
1: get stuff out so quickly now, isn't it? It didn't used to be that
2: Well, well I, I signed an insane deal. I, I have to be done with it by February 12th. Yeah, well, you can um, do that. So basically, <laughs> I've, got, I've had five weeks to work on a very controversial uh, book. Luckily, I, I've been working on it for about a year yeah. before I even pitched it. But uh, people think I'm crazy for signing this deal.
1: Oh, no, I know how someone like you can write. And I also know <laughs> that, you know, it's... You know, people say, "How do you prepare for the show?" You know, what do you read? That kind of stuff. People like you and I. I mean, I think if I'm right about you, you've probably you probably wrote this book in your head twice already. Truthfully, I did. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yes, yeah, yeah. And and, uh, and you know, yeah. for me,
2: this book was this book was so uh, controversial because you know, initially five years ago, I would have said that Ukraine was a hundred percent in the right and Russia was 100% in the wrong, but the more that you research it and you see what's going on and you see the way the government, all of our governments, have been lying about this war in particular, you kind of start saying there's a story here. And as a writer, that more than anything is what interests me, and that's why I'm writing this, because there's so much more than what the media is telling you, and it transcends partisan lines.
1: You know, one last point on this. Uh, in talking about the folly that the U.S. and, and I guess other Western allies engaged in uh, that you're, that you're uh, pointing to as, as part of the cause, uh, cause here of Russia's aggression, is Ukraine uh, guilty of anything or are they kind of more of the, a sitting victim outside of the corruption? I mean, have they done anything to incur Russia's wrath?
2: I mean, for me, and this is a huge component of the book, which is what I think is going to separate this book from a typical security or national security type book, the corruption and the way that Ukraine and Russia used our elections in the United States as a proxy war for their war, um, you know, that to me, I would say Ukraine really really erred in involving themselves. I mean, in 2016, there was a blatant attempt by Ukrainian intelligence to swing the election against Trump for Hillary Clinton because she was perceived as being friendlier. And then throughout the Obama and Biden administrations, we know about the Biden family's corruption uh, in uh, Ukraine. And now that Biden is president, um, we see the way that Biden has tilted Uh, foreign policy decisively in Ukraine's favor. That's not because Biden loves Ukraine. It's because the Ukrainian government spent years buying off the loyalty of Biden and his family through his son Hunter, um, which is a big problem because there were several, and I talk about this in the book, there are several off ramps that were missed for creating a stable peace simply because of the way Ukraine had involved itself in our domestic politics for years um, and so if there is, a, you know, something that they did wrong, it was that. Do I think that they're victims? Absolutely. I think the average Ukrainian has been brutalized unnecessarily by this war. And I do think that Russia should not have invaded in 2022. I suspect they did for reasons you and I have spoken about before, namely the perceived weakness of Joe Biden following the Afghan pullout. And so all of this could have been avoided had we had a different president like Donald Trump in yeah. office. I fundamentally believe that, yeah,
1: yeah, I mean, and that's what I guess helps shift me towards the Middle East a little bit there's mm-hmm. there the two big articles I was focusing on earlier, Brandon, one uh this morning in the New York Times, one yesterday uh from the Washington Post, having to do with uh Iran and hezbollah. the one that I thought. Well, there's so many places to go here. But one of the interesting things about the New York Times piece was this sentence that I would like to um, like to read to you. Um, The little discussed by the Biden administration, the Iran nuclear program has suddenly been put on steroids. International inspectors announced in late December that Iran initiated a threefold increase in its enrichment of near bomb grade uranium. By most rough, mm-hmm. rough estimates, Iran now has the fuel for at least three atomic weapons, and American intelligence officials believe the additional rent enrichment needed to turn that fuel into bomb grade material would take only a few weeks. Basically, turning right. a key over in an engine. Okay, right. so th- th- that's my language. Sorry. So, um,. I guess what I want to ask is how 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 can the Biden administration look itself in the mirror? This is three years into their idea of how to pacify Iran, which was through negotiations and money. And three years in, they've now been enriching uranium on steroids.
2: Well, they can look at themselves in the mirror because, first of all, in order for them to admit that there is anything wrong would be they would have to admit in an election year that their entire foreign policy for Iran in the Middle East was a disaster. Monumentally.
1: I mean, like 180 degrees just getting it
2: wrong. It would also impugn the real master of this administration, Barack Obama, because without Barack Obama's ill-fated 2015 uh, nuclear deal with with Iran, they would not have been able to jumpstart their nuclear weapons program uh, the way that they did. Furthermore, I would also add, I think the U.S. intelligence services have completely downplayed irresponsibly the fact that Iran already has rudimentary nuclear weapons capabilities. They have to, given how many decades they've been working on this, going back to the end of the Shah's regime. Mm-hmm. They were working on nuclear sure. technology. So I've never bought this line that somehow they've never had nukes, but now they're going to. They, they have rudimentary capabilities. Uh, And they have what's known as surge capacity, which means, as you rightly pointed out, it's like turning on a car with a key. It's just they can immediately surge forward. And the real issue also, setting aside their their nuclear technology development, it's the uh, attendant uh, ballistic missile technology that they've been refining for decades, plus their satellite capabilities uh, that allow for them to have greater accuracy with those missiles. Uh, they have perfected that technology um, pretty well uh, for the last decade. Uh, the Trump administration slowed it down, but Biden immediately put it back into hyperdrive, if you'll pardon the pun, um, because they are trying to normalize relations with Iran. Because this gets us back to my original point with this, which is the the Biden administration believes that if they engage in a policy of appeasement with Iran, it will somehow make them a normal country and make them want to like us more and want to be good, uh, you know, stewards of the global international system. And uh, so they're willing in the Biden White House to throw Israel and the Sunni Arab states. Hold that thought.
1: Yeah, hold that thought a second. Let me take a commercial break. I'm up against that. Uh, commercial clock, Brandon. Let me pick up right on that very point when we come right back. Brandon Weichert is my guest. He and I will be right back. Brandon Weichert is our guest. Follow him on Twix at We the Brandon. His last name W E I C H E R T. Brandon, before we go further down the Middle East, although maybe parts of the Middle East divide your answer, I'm not sure. I was on a call this morning and someone was asking me about Iran and Hezbollah and northern Israel or southern Lebanon and the scenarios that could play out and I said well an answer I've never gotten or been able to fix on and maybe you have one is whether Iran is a um is a uh, is a, is a, is, a, is a conscientious rational actor or whether Iran is an irrational actor based on dreams of millenarianism yes. and 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 so i went down two different roads is there an answer to this is it part and, yeah okay okay what is the
2: answer yeah um it's that whole notion that someone can hold two yeah. opposing ideas in their head at once
1: cognitive dissonance cognitive yeah, this yeah, is why
2: there's yeah. such a dangerous regime okay there is a real and I, you know, I know you know because you read the book, but but there is a real, and I talk about this in the book, the shadow war. There is a very logical, from the Iranian perspective, there is a very logical pro- pro- progression at foot here or at play here, from a geopolitical or a geostrategic standpoint. They feel that as Shiite Persians in a predominantly Sunni Arab. Uh, land, uh, the Middle East, with uh, nuclear-armed Jews of Israel, they believe in the Iranian leadership that they not only must develop their own countermeasures to the nukes that the Israelis have, but that they also must, because of this, this ancient blood feud with their Sunni Arab Muslim neighbors, the the Shiite Muslims of Iran believe they must assert their dominance over the whole region because they believe they are the true heirs of Mohammed yeah. and the Sunni Arabs are basically apostates. Right, right. And so there is, there is certainly this geopolitical, you can understand it, okay, there's a strategy at play. They want to be dominant, just like Germany in World War I and World War II wanted to dominate Europe. Iran wants to dominate the Middle East, but then there is this strain of millenarianism that you cannot divorce from the regime. Now, the Democrats in America, going back to Jimmy Carter, have been trying to divorce this strain of religious eschatology, um, which you simply cannot. The Iranians also believe it is written in their Twelver Shiite Islamic faith that their messiah, the Mahdi, must be released from his occlusion, mm-hmm. from his hiding, only when the believers initiate a series of chaotic events that will basically force their messiah out from hiding, and it will then save the world and make everything like Iran and give the Iranians their dominant position. This is the the, the eschatology that dominates the mullahs, run Iran. They believe this. And nuclear weapons and nuclear war and initiating global war is part of creating that chaos that will free their their Mahdi. Interestingly, if we're going to talk religion, it's very interesting. uh, The Mahdi, as described by Iranian Muslims, their Messiah, is actually the exact definition that most Christians have for their Antichrist. And so now you have another angle to this thing, where you not only have geopolitics, very rational but you have an insane interpretation of the Islamic faith at play among the most powerful elements in an Iran that is revolutionary in the way the Soviet Union was.
1: It's so interesting to me. This, this is a short segment. Maybe we pick up a little bit on it now and get into it a little bit more in the next few if you, if you have the patience for it. But Absolutely. what's interesting to me are two developments from that. One is up until, I don't know, five or eight years ago, one might say that with all the Sunni-Shiite differences and all the cultural and nationalist differences in the Arab and Muslim world, the one thing that could unite them and bring them all together was their antipathy and hatred toward Israel. That they were all united on. That obviously started to chip away during—I think it started to chip away during the Abraham Accords.
2: Absolutely. And,
1: okay, you agree on that? Absolutely. And, and, and as you're talking and I'll take the break on this and we can pick up on it when we come back. I don't want to ever say anything wrong. But as we're talking, you know, while you do hear that and that kind of talk that you've outlined from the malocracy, from the Iranian leadership and the Iran parliament, as 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 alien to us, as is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, as mysterious As retrograde, whatever adjective, pejorative, I can't go far enough in describing it. Um, They don't talk like that. They don't – you don't hear that kind of talk out of Saudi Arabia. Do you hear it out of certain terrorist elements, perhaps ISIL that are Sunni, perhaps al-Qaeda when it was Sunni? A little bit you do, but you don't hear that kind of millenarianism from Saudi. And I wonder if you could just tell me if I'm right or wrong or whatever you want to say about it when we come right back. Brandon Weikert and I will be right back. Welcome back to the Seth Leibson Show. Brandon Weikert is my guest, author of several books, prolific writer, great analyst, and brain amongst his books, The Shadow War, Iran's Quest for Supremacy. As I guess uh, the point I was trying to make earlier uh, just before the break, Brandon, was this, Iran versus the rest of the Sunni Arab world, um, for, which I think it's fair to say or was fair to say Saudi Arabia was the crown jewel of. Um, the you get the sense almost that as 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 okay, I'll say retrograde, uh, whatever alien philosophy Mm. and and theology, Saudi Arabia rules itself by. Mm -hmm. I've always thought it was a sewer country um, because of the way it ruled its own people. But whatever you want to say about it, you've got to, I think, conclude that they're at least a bit more rational than Iran. They don't have that cognitive dissonance that you were talking about earlier. Or am I wrong? They seem much more rational.
2: No, you're not wrong, and so really, it's important to understand that the the Saudi regime, the House of Saud, yeah. first of all, is massive. Right. But so you've got lower level princes who probably are supporting jihadist networks just because they're upset they're never going to be getting yeah, right. their day to reign. Right. And you can only um, own
1: so you've many got, Rolls Royces. You gotta yeah, exactly, right,
2: exactly. Yeah, then right. you've got then you've got the upper crust who are running the show. Um, they've always been pro-American. Uh, they've been very alien, as you say, to us. But they know where their bread is buttered, yep. if you will. Right. Um, and in what one might say, is a rational decision. Yes, yes. But what happened was in 1979 there was this this outburst of jihadist activity, uh, notably the Grand Mosque yep. seizure, in nope. which sort of a precursor to bin Laden, yeah. took over the, the Grand Mosque at the Mecca right. uh, and basically started slaughtering people on mosques, demanding that the House of Saud uh, basically abdicate in favor of a newer, more pure Islamic government. Right. And when that did not happen, the, the Saudi government, out of fear, started sending money to Islamic extremist groups. with the deal was... We'll give you money as long as you do not conduct jihad within the borders of Saudi Arabia. That deal held up from 1979 until 2003. What happened in 2003? Al-Qaeda in the Arab Peninsula, in the Arabian Peninsula, AQAP, arose and started doing terrorist attacks. In Saudi Arabia, which broke the deal. And from 2003 onward, the Saudis did not look the other way anymore. They became very serious members of our counterterrorism alliance, very effective, helped us out greatly. And ever since 2003, there has been an evolution in the Saudis' leadership away from tacit uh, you know, ambivalence or approval of jihadi activities abroad, so long as they didn't do it in Saudi Arabia, to a full-throated Uh, attack against al-Qaeda, ISIS, and other terrorist groups that eventuated in the rise of the current Crown Prince, Mohammed bin Salman. Mohammed bin Salman may be brutal, he may be autocratic at times, but he's actually fairly progressive. On human rights for a Saudi leader, giving women the right to drive, for instance, right. trying to modernize the country without losing the, the rank and file. He, he, he has to appeal to a large group of Islamists that populate Saudi Arabia, so we can't go too far. But he's gone farther than any Saudi leader yep. previously has. Yep. What's more, he has striven to marry Saudi power, not only to American power, particularly when Trump was in office, but also to Israeli power, Mm. which was unheard of. And so you're right, the Abraham Accords was key for not only securing America's interests without us having to invade like we did in Iraq, but it was also key for securing America's interests with its allies to contain Iran. And that is all gone now because Biden has been at war with um, the crown prince of Saudi Arabia for human rights violations. He's done everything he can to to damage the Israeli relationship. He has not fostered the, the, the Abraham Accords, despite whatever he may say in public. He has done everything he can to destroy those. that that alliance. And he's done everything he can, Biden has, and the Democrats to empower and enhance Iran's standing in the region, all in an effort to basically pull the United States out of the Middle East and hand it over to the Iranians, who will then hand it over to China and Russia. Now,
1: Iran's tentacles are not feckless uh, in all this. And what one worries about is whether they are going to become with Iran as the center, the hub of their spokes, I suppose, Hezbollah, Houthis, you name their proxies, Uh, Hamas. Um, One wonders if Iran is going to become ever, ever more aggressive as a result of, you know, the fact that Saudi Arabia is – is is becoming more and more more and more more and more situated as part of the community of nations with regard to right. israel etc, and right. if they are going to become more aggressive uh, hezbollah these attacks against israel, the Washington post outline of what would happen if Hezbollah decided to go all out against Israel with perhaps one hundred and fifty thousand rockets and missiles, and maybe that 's an undercount um, maybe it isn 't. Does Israel have, strategic question, I know this is a a lurch, I'm sorry, does Israel have the air defenses to fend that off?
2: No. Okay. No. And in fact, um, the Washington Post is again ripping me off, because a year ago, when I was writing about this, uh, writers over there were mocking me. I know some writers over there, and they were making fun of me, because they said I was being, uh, you know, a warmonger. Yeah. Um, but but as you know, chapter three or four of the Shadow War is all about the precision guided missile threat that Hezbollah poses to Israel. Yeah. The reason you're seeing Israel striking now hard against targets in Lebanon, Hezbollah targets, is because they are trying to disrupt the ability for Hezbollah to launch the thousands of HMX-fueled precision-guided munitions that they have been building with Iran's help in Lebanon since 2016. In fact, as I articulate in the book, there is a very real possibility that that Beirut blast in 2020 uh, that that took out part of the port of Beirut was actually a a covert attempt by the West— to knock out this massive and growing Iranian uh, precision-guided munitions threat. It was in conjunction with the assassination of Qasim Soleimani, Mm -hmm. um, because the Iranians at that time were getting ready for a huge terrorist offensive against Israel from Lebanon, and we were able to cut it out. Uh, But now that Biden's in charge, the Iranians have reconstituted these capabilities in Lebanon, and the Iranians, I think, through Hezbollah, are readying to strike very hard. Now, mind you, if they can fire those precision-guided missiles at Israel from Lebanon, the first target will be the ammonium nitrate storage facilities at the port of Haifa, right. which Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, has said would simulate the same effect as a dirty bomb going off, knocking out the port of Haifa as an economic hub for Israel and doing fundamental damage to their economy, which is the point. Well,
1: that's right. I mean... Uh, I, uh... My worry, I got to go to break, and then I have a short segment coming back. My worry is Hezbollah could attack very many different kinds of targets. Absolutely, uh, and, and, infrastructure. Yeah. Infrastru- let me let me let me conclude the show on that with you when I come right back. Can I do that? Sure. Thanks, Brandon. Yeah. Brandon Weikert is my guest. He and I will be right back. Brandon Weikert has been our guest this hour. W e i c h e r t. Get his books. Follow him on Twix at We the Brandon. Brandon, I was just making the, the point. I think I'm right. You tell me. Always, uh, you tell me. Um, you know, Hezbollah has a lot of rockets, missiles. It it yes, it could go for the port. It could go for chemical plants. It could go for nuclear heart facilities, I assume most of which are hardened, but nonetheless, they could even just go for some condos and industrial buildings, and it would be hugely devastating, which raises the million-dollar question, uh, is Israel right to go after them now? Is it a provocation, uh, or is it long overdue? I know that's a lot to throw at you for two minutes.
2: Well. I can tell you that the Iranians and Hezbollah and the world community, because they're a bunch of anti-Semites anyway, um, they they are automatically going to say that Israel's going to provoke the strike that's coming from Hezbollah. As you know, I've been saying since October 7th, that Hezbollah is planning to do this no matter what, because the Hamas attack was not happening in a, in a vacuum. Right. It was part of a larger move. You now see the Houthis doing their thing, and eventually when that slows down, you're going to see Hezbollah open up with the coup de grace, what they think will do the coup de grace. And so Israel has no choice but to try to, to delay the Iranian, through Hezbollah, strike from Lebanon as long as possible, because they've got to tie up loose ends in, in Gaza and have their forces back in position to resist whatever's coming from the, north. Uh, the problem is, though, you're right, they're going to target key civilian infrastructure. In fact, this was what Nasrallah, the head of Hezbollah, yeah. said yeah. is the point of the precision project. To target civilian infrastructure throughout Israel and the Israeli um, air defenses, as sophisticated as they are, will not be able to stop the tens of thousands of rockets that the Hezbollah will launch at them in single salvos. And so you are witnessing a very existential threat to Israel, and I do not think the West is prepared to assist them in any meaningful way, which means Israel really is standing on its own, and it's a very scary thing.
1: Thirty seconds, Uh, Brandon. I meant to ask you this earlier, I'm sorry, but is it worse That the secretary of defense doesn't tell the White House and the cabinet and his number two and the National Security Agency that he's going to be out of pocket for a week? Or is it worse that the White House didn't even realize they didn't have a secretary of defense for a week?
2: As long as Joe Biden is president, we have no president. Okay. Um, And I think this this Lloyd Austin thing proves they didn't even tell the president for three days what was going on. So this is a nightmare. We have no president.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, we have you. Thank you, Brandon. <laughs>
2: Thank you. And happy new
1: year. Let us pray happy and be new peaceful. Year. Yes.
2: Okay. Yeah.
1: <laughs> Until tomorrow, folks, God bless you all. We have a Brandon and David and Bill and Teresa and everyone else here. God bless and class dismissed